Father, we come to you this morning confessing that so often we look at ourselves and consider ourselves as the center of the universe. Lord, even though you have knit us together in our mother's womb and have created us for specific purposes, even though you have made us wonderfully, we indeed, we are wonderfully made, Lord, we, we do sometimes consider ourselves to be the center of the universe. But Lord, we say this morning that that position belongs to you alone. The glory goes to you and not to us. And we pray this morning, Lord, as we open your word, that you would be glorified, that your name would be made famous here, uh, that you would be magnified, and that we would come away from this time together in your word astounded again at you and your glory and your greatness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to begin by introducing you to a woman who lived in Europe uh, over 200 years ago. Her name was Jane Lucretia d'Estere. The year was 1815, and Jane was 18 years old. She was the mother of two small children. She had no money. She'd recently been widowed because her husband had been killed suddenly in a duel with another man. Well, on this particular day, Jane sat atop a riverbank in Scotland, despairing about her situation, full of pain, considering suicide. But at that very moment, Jane just happened to look up and she caught sight of a young man on the other side of the river there in a field. And this young man was plowing very skillfully and in an orderly sort of a way. He was executing perfect, straight furrows into the earth. As Jane observed the fine work and the skill of this man, as she looked over at him, her perspective began to change. She began to question her self-pity. She thought of her two children, especially, who needed her. She got up, she dusted herself off, and she went back to her children. Blessedly, a few weeks after that experience at the riverside, Jane came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a few years after that, she remarried. But one of the things that she did, amazingly, after coming to faith, was Jane committed to pray, ongoingly pray, for her descendants down through a dozen generations. She prayed for her descendants down through a dozen generations. It turns out that Jane's great-great-grandson is none other than Os Guinness, who is a very important, current, international Christian thinker. Guinness has written over 25 books, 
And a story that I just related to you is found in one of those books, although Oz Guinness tells the story for different reasons than I just did. Guinness tells the story to make the point that the plowman's commonplace labor, his commonplace task of furrowing that field, ended up being the spark that saved the life of his great-great grandmother. As Guinness tells the story, he's trying to show there how our commonplace work, our everyday work, can have unintended effects that escape the bounds of our own lifetime. But this morning, I'm relating this story to you to say that as a pastor theologian, I am glad for Oz Guinness. I am glad for the body of work that he's given to the church. And if not for the happy outcome at the river that day in Scotland in 1815, there would be no Oz Guinness. The fact that Jane committed to pray for a descendant that she would never meet who would become an internationally recognized Christian thinker is also quite astounding, isn't it? Friends, the story demonstrates this, that God's work cuts across generations. What I do in 2021 may influence something or influence someone in 2,221. God's work in us is not limited to our lifetime. Unlike us, God's view, God's work spans across the generations. While we are nearing the end of our journey through the book of Ruth, Uh, Next week, in fact, will be the final sermon in the series. But this morning, we're looking at a passage where we can see something of this transhistorical work of God, his work that extends across many generations. So let's go to our passage now, which begins at Ruth 4, verse 11. Remember here, just as a refresher, that Boaz has just freshly announced his intention to marry Ruth, to act as the redeemer in this situation. Boaz has made a public announcement about all of this to those gathered there at the town gate. And twice, twice in that announcement that Boaz has made, He said to the people, you are witnesses. Twice he says that. Well, in verse 11 now, the people respond in kind. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. In other words, they say, we affirm this legal transaction, Boaz. And then they continue by saying to Boaz, May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. In ancient Israel, after the wedding ceremony was complete, the wedding party 
uh, would then proceed to the groom's home where the groom would formally welcome the bride into his house. And it's that tender aspect of the wedding that these people are referring to here when they talk about the woman who is coming into your house. Ruth would soon enter the house of Boaz as Boaz's bride. And they pray this blessing here, this blessing that Yahweh will make Ruth to be like Rachel and Leah. Who were Rachel and Leah? Well, of course, we have their story, don't we, in the book of Genesis. Rachel and Leah were sisters. They were the two wives of Jacob who ended up, between the two of them, bearing eight sons while their servants, Bilhah and Zilpah, gave birth to another four sons, making a total of 12. And those 12 sons would become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. When the people pray this this blessing over Ruth here, they are effectively praying for what? They are praying for great fertility that Ruth would bear many sons to Boaz, like Rachel and Leah had done with Jacob, that this young Moabite woman would approach the great fertility of the founding mothers of Israel. And it's interesting to consider here that Ruth, Ruth has been barren so far in the story. Remember, she had been married to Mahlon for a decade before Mahlon died, and no children had been born to the couple. Well, Rachel also had started off barren in her story. And so this prayer here in 4.11, it might also have the flavor, may barren Ruth be like Rachel who had been barren but who ended up giving birth to two sons. Well, at the close of verse 11, the people continue here with their blessing by saying to Boaz, may you act hail, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Now here the Hebrew idiom suggests that these people are praying that Boaz's good name will live on in Bethlehem even after he dies. May his worthy reputation live on into perpetuity. And they continue with their solemn blessing on Boaz in verse 12. And may your house, Boaz, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. Perez is Boaz's ancestor. Perez was the son of Judah. And Perez ended up having two sons, according to Genesis 46, verse 12. Again, the people here are praying for fertility, for both Ruth and for Boaz, for this couple. May Boaz have two sons like Perez, his ancestor, did. 
But it's interesting here, isn't it? It's interesting that in their blessing here over the house of Boaz, in this blessing, the people invoke the name of Perez's mother, Tamar. As soon as we see that name Tamar here in the text, it strikes us that there are many significant similarities between Tamar and Ruth. But there are also glaring differences between the two women. Tamar and Ruth, this is an interesting contrast, and I suspect that the writer of Ruth wants us to ponder the similarities and the differences just a little bit as we see that name Tamar pop up in the text. So the similarities between Tamar and Ruth, first of all, Tamar's story, again, if you want to reference it, is in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar lost her husband Ur, just like Ruth lost her husband Mahlon. And Tamar, like Ruth, had no child. For Tamar, there was a leveret marriage situation where her dead husband's brother, Onan, was given to her to try for a son, but of course, that failed miserably. In Ruth's case, there is a leveret marriage situation, of course, where Boaz will be instrumental in trying for a son. Tamar had dressed up and had gone to her father-in-law Judah in search of a secure future. Ruth had dressed up and had gone to Boaz in search of a secure future future. And then both women, of course, end up giving birth, don't they, to sons who are the ancestors, in both cases, of King David. So for Tamar, it was Perez, and for Ruth, it will be Obed. Now, the differences between the two women, though, are, are quite striking. So in Tamar's case, her plan involved deceiving, deceiving her father-in-law Judah uh, into giving her a child outside of marriage. In Ruth's case, there is zero deception with Boaz, and the couple tries for a child within the bounds of marriage. In Tamar's case, she was hauled before a town tribunal for what she had done, and there was shame involved. In Ruth's case, there is only public praise for her and for Boaz, blessing that is pronounced on their house. So in the end, Ruth is like Tamar in some ways, to be sure, but she is also very unlike Tamar in other very important ways, and the appearance of Tamar's name here in the text, as we're reading our Bibles, the appearance of her name invites these comparisons. But now let's travel onward to verse 13. After all of this blessing on Boaz and Ruth at the gate, the narrator now jumps in. He takes over at verse 13 here, reporting in just a single verse the events of the better part of an entire year. Watch this. So Boaz took Ruth, 
He took her as his bride into his home, and she became his wife. A very climactic moment in the story. And he went into her, and now watch, we have only the second direct explicit action of God that gets mentioned in the entire book of Ruth. The first of those was back at 1.6 where it said explicitly that God was the one who ended the emptiness that had come upon the land. God had ended the famine. Now here at 4.13, it's God, listen, God who ends the 10-year emptiness of Ruth's womb. God grants miraculous life. All by himself, he grants miraculous life where there had been a decade of emptiness, barrenness. The text says, Yahweh gave Ruth conception, and she bore a son. Friends, in this book of Ruth, Boaz is said to do all sorts of kind things for Ruth, above and beyond kinds of things, but only God can perform this category of kindness. Only God can. Conception in the womb is a gift that must come from God alone. Here, Ruth joins the company of Rachel and Sarah and Hannah and others in Scripture to whom the Lord gives babies after seasons of barrenness. But it's not just Ruth and Boaz who received this gift of a son. Ultimately, it's all of Israel who does. Ruth gives birth here to the grandfather of David. David who would be for Israel the greatest Old Testament era king of them all. And so indeed... We need to see this. Ruth does become like Rachel and Leah, like the mothers of the 12 tribes. Ruth has a similar sort of importance in the history of Israel. Her descendant will be David. And notice quite something, something that is quite important here. After this 13th verse, watch this. After this 13th verse, both Ruth and Boaz will now drop out of the story proper for good. And so we bid them both a very fond farewell here. Their parts are now finished. What happens now is that the focus shifts to the only main character who remains, and that's Naomi. Just as the book of Ruth began in a Naomi-centric sort of a way, so it now ends. The narrative ends with resolution for Naomi and for her situation, which had been the focus at the beginning of the book. So let's go to verse 14. Then, notice, then the women said to Naomi, watch this, the last time the women of Bethlehem spoke as a group to Naomi 
was back at 119, where they had wondered if the person they were looking at was indeed Naomi. Is this Naomi? They had said. Now as the book is getting ready to close here at 414, the women are much more sure about Naomi's identity. Naomi is the one who now has a redeemer. They say, Blessed be Yahweh who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And here, the redeemer that they're talking about, as we look, at, look carefully here at the context of these verses, the redeemer they're talking about is not Boaz, but the child who has just been born. Yes, Boaz has done all the necessary, technical, legal, uh, Deuteronomy redemption work here. But now this little baby will redeem Naomi in his own way. This child will be Naomi's security for the long term in this patriarchal society. As Naomi proceeds into old age... This child, born in her husband's family, he's going to grow into a man who will care for Naomi and provide for her. And at the end of verse 14, the women exclaim, May this child's name be renowned in Israel. Back at verse 11, the people wanted Boaz's name, to be renowned in Bethlehem. Now the women desire that this little infant's name be renowned in all Israel. Isn't this a tremendous blessing that is being poured out here on this couple? Verse 15, the women continue speaking to Naomi. They say, he, this child, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of of your old age. Now, isn't that simply beautiful? This baby will be to Naomi a restorer of life and a nourisher of her old age. And can you guess what verb is here in the Hebrew text that is translated as the English word restorer? Can you guess the verb? Sure enough, it's that verb Shuv. Remember that word in chapter 1, return, turn, shuv? The women pray here that the infant will be a returner of life to Naomi. Ah, friends, the Hebrew writers of Scripture were geniuses, weren't they? They put this word in here, shuv, be a returner of life to you, Naomi. This child shall be a shuver, a returner of life, and a nourisher of your old age. And why? Why will this happen? Because this child comes from Ruth. That's why. He shall be to you a restorer and nourisher for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Ruth is the mother, and so it stands to reason that her child will be a restorer of life and a nourisher 
like mother, like son. But notice, friends, what these women say about Ruth here. Notice what they say about this character. They say, For your daughter-in-law, Naomi, your daughter-in-law who loves you, your daughter-in-law whose self-sacrificial chesed toward you has been so voluminous, so plenty, and so exemplary, who is more to you, Naomi, than seven sons. More to you than seven sons. Wow, our jaws kind of drop here as we read this in the story. Hasn't this whole story been about Naomi somehow regaining one son? The concern has been for one living son. But now these women declare that Ruth is worth more to Naomi than seven sons. The praise for Ruth here could not be any higher, especially in a society that placed a high value on sons. In this ancient society, to say that a woman was worth more than seven sons, this was a massively high tribute to that woman. Ruth gets this enormously high praise here from the women of the town. And get the contrast here, friends. Get the contrast. Remember Naomi coming back into town in chapter 1 and she said, I'm empty. I'm empty. I'm empty. As Ruth was standing there right beside her, remember that moment. Well, here the women are talking some sense. It's almost a gentle rebuke to Naomi. They're talking sense into her. No, Naomi. You had it completely backwards. All along, you were not empty. You were not because Ruth was your fullness. Ruth was the person God gave you. You had two sons before Naomi, but Ruth is more worth more to you than seven sons. And this child that Ruth has just birthed is going to be a returner of life to you and a nourisher in your old age because he has come from the womb of Ruth. Isn't this beautiful? And then we get verse 16, and friends, I have to confess to you that this made me weep as I read this verse again in my study this week. Just picture the the scene in your mind's eye. Then Naomi took the child. The Hebrew word behind the translation child is the word Yaled, Yaled. Naomi takes this living bundle of life, this squirming, promising, lively Yaled. The last time we had the word Yaled in the book of Ruth was back at 1 5 
when Naomi found herself bereft of her two yeleds, her two sons, who were now deceased. So, 1-5, as the story begins, we have the horror and the pain and the emptiness of two deceased yeleds. And now 4.16, as the story ends, we have the birth of a yeled. Friends, we have come from emptiness to fullness, from death to life, from sorrow to joy. We've come from chaos to restoration, from wailing and mourning, the beginning of Ruth, now to the oil of gladness, and God has done this. Amen? God has done this. God gave Ruth conception, and she bore a son. Isn't God great and beautiful and merciful and compassionate and awesome? And now watch the beautiful heartwarming, tender scene that unfolds in verse 16. What does Naomi do here as her very last actions in the book of Ruth? Well, the ESV has it this way. She took the yeled, the child, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. But with Daniel Block... Old Testament scholar, I think that such a translation is less than ideal, in fact. A far better one, I think, is given in the Jewish Publication Society Bible, which has this here. Naomi took the child, listen, and did what? Held it to her bosom. This is a grandmotherly action. That happens here. Naomi takes the baby and lovingly she presses him gently into her bosom. I think with a smile of joy. Sorry. A smile of joy on her once bitter face. At last. At last. Ruth had once come back from a field, bringing gleanings and bringing leftovers for Naomi. Later, Ruth had come back from her threshing floor meeting with Boaz with six measures of barley for Naomi. All of that blessing from God to Naomi foreshadowed, it foreshadowed, the ultimate fruit that he would bring into the life of Naomi by Ruth, this son, this son of Ruth's who Naomi now presses into her bosom, this son who will be Naomi's protector and provider. He's the ancestor of David. David is the ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. The verse in the Jerusalem publication version says that Naomi pressed him 
into her bosom and became his foster mother. Or we could even translate it here, she became his guardian. This is certainly not about Naomi becoming a wet nurse here or anything of the sort. She is pressing the baby lovingly into her bosom and becoming a sort of godmother to the child or guardian to the child. And with that, Naomi now exits the stage. She, along with both Ruth and Boaz, will not act or speak in the book again. Goodbye, Naomi. Verse 17, our our last verse this morning. And the women of the neighborhood gave the child a name. Wow, isn't that different from our Western world where the parents give children their names? The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to who? To Ruth? No, to Naomi. This is about the solution to Naomi's situation. Naomi would now act in a sort of mothering capacity to this child born of Ruth. It could be said very legitimately here that the child has been born to Naomi. The child was for Naomi in the family line of Elimelech. The child would care for her in her old age. And they named him Obed, which means what? It means worker or one who serves. This newborn is going to end up serving Naomi and he's going to end up serving the purposes of God in salvation history. And so he's aptly named here servant or worker. Now, just before we look at the final sentence in verse 17, which isn't on the slide yet, I want to remind you that all the main characters have now finished their roles in the story and have exited the stage. Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi will not be heard from again. The stage is empty, but the story is not over. At the end of verse 17, we get an unexpected surprise appearance. We get a coming onto the stage of a very eminent, well-renowned person. A few moments ago, we said that Obed, or servant, would serve the purposes of God in history. Well, Notice how verse 17 ends. It ends with a brief genealogy. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David makes an appearance on the stage in the book of Ruth now. David, the greatest Old Testament king who ever was. Fireworks go off at the tail end of Ruth here. Fireworks. David's name pops up. Friends, this little family living in the time of the judges 
with bitter Naomi, scavenging Ruth, landowner Boaz. This little family ends up producing King David. Now here's the question, did Ruth and Boaz live to see the birth of their great-grandson David? Well, it's highly doubtful. It's highly doubtful. We can be sure that Ruth and Boaz would not have known anything about the greatness and the fame that their great-grandson would achieve. And for that matter, of course Ruth and Boaz did not live, of course they did not, to see the arrival centuries and centuries later of their other descendant, a person named Jesus, who is the Christ, the reason we are here today on this YouTube channel. But friends, God, you see, God works across the generations. God's work is bigger than our lifetimes. God may bring things about hundreds of years after us, after we are six feet buried in the earth. He may bring things about that can be connected back to the words, attitudes, and actions that we performed in our lifetime. As Don Carson has put it so well, listen to this, quote, the time scale on which God works out his purposes is vastly greater than we can imagine. One more time, Carson says, the time scale on which God works out his purposes is vastly greater than we can imagine. At the beginning today, we talked about Jane Lucretia Dester, who decided against suicide, was saved by the Lord, and committed then to pray for her descendants down through a dozen generations, and how in her lineage, generations after her, Oz Guinness was born, a Christian thinker who has had a massively important, positive, worldwide influence. God works his works across hundreds, thousands of years. Boaz and Ruth, as they faithfully carried out their daily business, had no clue. They had no idea what God would bring about generations later, connected to their faithfulness, connected to their faithfulness. As Boaz focused that day on redeeming Naomi and Ruth, as Boaz engaged the legal procedures of redemption that day at the town gate, as he made efforts to save these two women from their peril, he could not have known. It would have never entered his mind that three generations later in his very lineage would come the one named David by whom God promised to save not two women, but all of Israel. 2 Samuel 3.18, God says of Boaz's great-grandson David, God says, by the hand of my Eved, like Obed, 
by the hand of my Evid, my servant, David, I will do what? I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand, indeed, of all their enemies. Truly great things came about in the advent of David that could be linked all the way back to the quiet, day-to-day faithfulness, the chesed in action of Ruth and Boaz. Your quiet faithfulness at home, at work, at school, this very week, your quiet faithfulness may indeed be used of God to touch the life, to influence the life of a person living 200 years after you who will never have the chance to meet you. Impossible? With God, all things are possible. There's Boaz at the gate that day, carefully engaging a legal process to redeem Naomi and Ruth. Could he have known at that moment as he engaged in those saving actions that in his house, in his lineage, a horn of salvation would come? Luke 1.69, a horn of salvation would come who by his cross would save many throughout the world of nations. Could Boaz have known that? There's Boaz making sure on a couple of occasions, on a couple specific days in his brief life, that Ruth's apron was full of barley. He wanted fullness for Ruth and Naomi. So he poured grain and barley into Ruth's apron. He loaded Ruth up with food. Boaz had this concern for fullness Well, in those moments, do you think that Boaz was aware that a descendant would come, a descendant of his, some 30 generations later, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Jesus Christ our Lord. As Boaz carefully measured six measures of barley to fill Ruth's apron, was he aware that 30 generations hence in his lineage would come the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily? As Boaz carried out his faithful filling, could he have known that a whole fullness of people from every nation would one day receive grace upon grace from the fullness of his descendant, Jesus. Did Boaz know as he filled Ruth's apron with grain that day that their descendant, Jesus, Ruth and Boaz's descendant, Jesus, would be here with us today, right now, risen from the dead, filling us with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3, 19. Could he have known that as he carried out his day-to-day, faithful, godly life? The people had prayed for Boaz's renown. 
in Bethlehem in verse 11 of this morning's passage. And the women had prayed likewise for the renown of little Obed in Israel. Well, could these people have known at all that their prayers would be more than answered as the names of Boaz and Obed and Ruth now appear in great abiding renown in Matthew 1, verse 5. Boaz, Ruth, and Obed are named in that New Testament verse, named as essential links in the chain of people leading up to the birth of the Savior of the world. Friends, as we close now, I want to say, of course, the faithful words and actions that you and I undertake in our lifetimes will not be linked to the coming of the Savior like it was with Boaz and Ruth, but the principle that God is giving in his word here still applies, and that's this. One more time. Our faithfulness right now, tomorrow, this afternoon, our faithfulness, our chesed in action, our quiet loving kindnesses toward others that are, and toward God that are practiced in this lifetime. They can indeed be used of God to affect God's world across generations. One more time, that quote from Carson. The timescale on which God works out his purposes is vastly greater than we can imagine. So, Live faithfully. Practice the kindness of God this week in the power and in the wisdom that God supplies. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so blessed that you have revealed to us this little book of Ruth. We are so thankful, Holy Spirit, for all the things that you are teaching us through this book, for the tenderizing of our calcified hearts that you are performing as we expose ourselves to this portion of your word. Father, we are thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came as kindness on two legs, on two feet, to live amongst us, to take on our flesh, to teach us the righteousness of God, and then to go to the cross to be our atonement, our sacrifice, to pay the debt that we owed for our sin so that we could go free. And then that he rose again, vindicated by you, Father, for our justification, ascended now to your right hand where he sits awaiting the second coming to come again kindly to gather us home eternally. We praise you and we thank you for who you are, for your word, for all that you are doing in our church and in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hello again. Today in this, our second to last episode in this special series on the book of Ruth, I want to return again to an idea that we talked about in the very first sermon in this entire series, that idea of the canonical placement of the book of Ruth. Uh, specifically, I want to focus on the placement of Ruth after Judges as it appears in our Bibles. 
So as we think of the book of Judges, uh, the last three chapters of that book are largely taken up with the story of the Levite and his concubine and what transpires as a result of the heinous, the horrific evil that is done to the concubine along with another woman. Uh, uh, here I won't get into the awful details of that story, but if you care to read it, you can find it in uh, Judges chapter 19. What I want to focus on here is the geography of the whole affair. So we have this Levite from the hill country of Ephraim, and he travels to Bethlehem in Judah in search of his wayward concubine. While in Bethlehem of Judah, the Levite uh, experiences fine hospitality, warm hospitality uh, from the people who have taken him in there. But then when he and his concubine begin to travel back to the hill country of Ephraim, they end up staying in Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. And while they are there in Benjamin, they receive zero hospitality. No one will take them in. In fact, what happens is an old man from the hill country of Ephraim ends up taking them in and showing them his hospitality. But then what happens is some worthless fellows, as they are called, Benjaminites, surround that house where they are staying and they engage in just absolutely horrific evil toward not only the concubine, but also the daughter of the old man. And the evil there just snowballs. Finally, what happens is the majority of Israel goes to war against the tribe of Benjamin. And the result is that the tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin loses 25,000 men. One of the basic points being made there in those final chapters of the book of Judges is, is this basic point. Bad stuff happens in Benjamin. Bad people come out of Benjamin. But look again at the warm hospitality that was given in Judah, in Bethlehem. Look at the fine people that are there in Judah and Bethlehem. And of course, this relates, doesn't it, to the fact that David comes out of Judah and Bethlehem. It's a very pro-David sort of message. While Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin, and we know that uh, Saul is not the best king. The very last verse in the book of Judges uh, says to us that there was no king in Israel. It's in the very last verse of the book. And that's a refrain that actually happens quite often in the last five chapters of the book of Judges. And then right after the book of Judges, we get the book of Ruth. What is Ruth concentrated on? A godly family who are centered in Bethlehem of Judah. And from this family comes the baby Obed. Uh, we looked at that this uh, just yesterday in the sermon. Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David from Judah. With the advent of that word David uh, toward the end of the book of Ruth and the concentration on the genealogy of David, um, we can look at the entire book of Ruth really as the birth narrative of David, a four chapter long birth narrative of King David. 
contrast that with the birth narrative of King Saul, which is virtually non-existent in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, we get genealogies that lead up to the name Saul, but no real birth narrative. Well, of course, uh, following Judges and Ruth in our Bible, the books that come after those two books are the books of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, which are taken up with what? With the life story of David from Judah, and secondarily, they tell the story of the madness of Saul from Benjamin. So what's the basic point here today? The point is that when we read our Bibles, we need to understand that even the ordering of the books as we have them is not uh, simply a careless sort of thing or a happenstance sort of thing. There is a definite logic, a definite order um, that the compilers of the canon uh, were thinking about. So in this example we've looked at today, again, just to review, we have Judges, those final chapters, which say to us, Benjamin bad, Judah good, Saul bad, David good. Then we have the book of Ruth, which comes after Judges, which has the birth narrative of David from Judah, this godly family that gives birth, uh, that, that ends up birthing David. And then Samuel, where David is, rises to be the great king of Israel, Saul is a madman, essentially. Saul is not the king that Israel needed. And of course, if we go even wider to the whole Bible, who ends up coming from Bethlehem and Judah? Jesus does. And we're going to leave things there for today. Uh, happy Bible reading. Be blessed. And Lord willing, we'll see you back here for our final episode next Monday. <music>